Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. Since 2010, the most listened to show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success. And practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is, without a doubt, one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Podcast are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at tedhart.com on iTunes. And now, just say, Alexa, play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach Podcast. This is show number 219. Steve McLaughlin is the Vice President of Data Analytics and author of the best-selling book, Data-Driven Nonprofit. Uh, Steve, this is your third time here on the Nonprofit Coach. Thank you for joining us today. Appreciate you having me back, Ted. Um, in your uh, technology as an electronic filing cabinet, they don't use its true power because they don't understand what can be done with it. True, yes. I'm sure that's true because you <laughs> said it, but fill in the blanks for us. Why is that true? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, we have technology and have had technology in the nonprofit sector, a lot of data, a lot of information. But actually putting it into action is becoming sort of a, a new muscle tone or a new skill set that a lot of organizations need to develop. And it's this transition from we have a bunch of stuff and we stick it in the electronic filing cabinet and occasionally we use it to, no, data is an integral part of how we run our charity on a day-to-day -day basis, when we need to make decisions, when we need to make choices, when we need to test something. Um, you could use opinions, although that's not nearly as fun, or can we use data, right? Can we use data to help improve our decision-making, um, improve our results, those types of things. And again, it, it's been around for, for quite a while, but I think there's a definite shift happening in the sector where this idea of the data isn't just some exhaust that comes out and we deal with when we want to, to no, data is something we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. It's a, it's a primary driver of our decision-making and our understanding of what's happening. Um, and I think you can only expect that to continue into the future as well. well now, of course, as I, as I just mentioned, the, uh, the title of your book is 
data-driven nonprofits. So can you give us an example of, of an organization that doesn't treat their data as if it's you know, sitting in that electronic file cabinet, but a real live way that they would be data-driven as opposed to, I guess, data-accessed? Yeah, great question. So, you know, one of the things that I did in the book is I spent a time talking to a lot of different charities and a lot of different types of sectors. Because one of the things I wanted to understand was, does someone have a monopoly on using data well, right? Is it only for the really big orgs? Turns out, no. Uh, really, organizations of all sizes can benefit. Is it universities or hospitals? What about animal welfare? Turns out, no. Again, the different missions, different types of organizations get value from, from data and well, as well. And there's a lot of stories in the book, but I think you know we're here in, in Toronto today, and just down the street here is uh, Sick Kids Hospital for Children. And I know for a fact that at Sick Kids, one of the things that they use is a lot of data and analytics to help inform their decisions about um, engaging with supporters, engaging with donors, right? All charities, regardless of how large you are, or small you are, or your mission, you have limited time, resources, money to spend. And so, you know, an organization like a Sick Kids uses analytics to help understand of all the potential donors, supporters that we should spend time engaging with today, who are the right donors for the digital channel? Who are the donors that are mid-level giving staff or our recurring gift staff? Who should they focus on? Because we can't focus on everyone. And data and analytics are one of those things that help you prioritize who are, who, where should you spend your time? Where should you mm -hmm. prioritize? And I think that's true, you know, whether you're a large organization or a small organization. You know, if you're a large charity and you raise $100 million a year, uh, if you miss out on a $50,000 gift, a $1 million gift, you'll be okay, right? You've got a mm -hmm. pipeline, your giving program, you'll survive. If you're a $1 million a year charity and you miss out on a $5,000 gift or a $100,000 gift, that's, that's significant. And so it, it, it's also the, the organizations of different sizes that need to understand we need data, we need analytics, we need these things to help improve it because it allows us to get more um, results for the time and effort that we're able to put into things. Here on The Nonprofit Coach, one of the most important things that we try to get to is that practical knowledge that uh, everyone can take away when you go to the office tomorrow morning what are the things that I need to know to be able to succeed? And I think one of the most important things that you just said is data informing decisions. Um, and in your book, you speak about the difference between value metrics and vanity metrics. <laughs> Help us understand the difference because I'm guessing it's the value metrics, but how would we know the difference? Yeah, you know, the, the challenge is we often start out by focusing on vanity metrics. So if you've been doing anything in the digital space for a while, you remember HITS, right? Is the acronym for how idiots track statistics. That HITS <laughs> were this really completely useless, meaningless vanity metric that was counting the page and all the things on the page. We got a million hits, but yeah, but, but how many conversions did you get? And in the past 10 years, it's things like, well, how many followers do you have? How many likes do you have? Those are vanity metrics. Um, and what one of the stories I tell in the book is that you know some organizations initially need to use vanity metrics to get senior leadership or the board to engage. So I really don't like vanity metrics, but if I'm trying to get my board to understand the value of our house file, the value of what we're doing on social media, I might sprinkle a few vanity metrics. Yeah, I'll I'm going to switch it to value metrics, which is, and of those people 
who've engaged with us on social media. This is the percentage of them we've gotten to take an action, make a gift, attend an event, do an advocacy action. That's a value mm -hmm. metric. And, but I recognize sometimes, even though we don't like the vanity metrics, we might have to use them strategically to get people on board because mm -hmm. they, they might not know the difference, mm -hmm. right? They might think that that vanity metric is super important mm -hmm. until we educate them that no, what we want to focus on is the value that we're getting from a particular activity. Steve, let me, let me try this on uh, to see if this is leaning more towards uh, the value metrics because it, it always surprises me. Uh, nonprofit organizations, as, as you have said, um, still act like digital online is sort of that new, th it really is the everyday normal way yeah. that, that, uh, that donors want to interact with us, want to learn from us. But for most nonprofit organizations, their website is, is still sort of about the land grab. You know, you've got more power in the organization if you have more position on the homepage or you have more position on the website, whereas a value metric that is right in front of everybody that they can actually go back to their office and, and get is what are the pages and what is the data on your website that people are actually accessing more than other data. That's, that's a value metric as opposed to a vanity metric. Yeah, right? absolutely. I mean, th the, the homepage often is very crowded and everyone's fighting for attention, but when you look at the analysis of what's happening on your website, you might find, well, what's the content two or three levels deep that people are actually going to visit? Because in most cases, it's not to spend all day on the homepage, even though you may have designed it as if that's what you think they're going to right. do. It's the, wow, turns out, we, we're getting a lot of traffic around some of our programmatic work, the content mm -hmm. that's about programs. Maybe we should pay attention to that. Maybe we should think about, well, did we drive people to that through email campaigns or social? What's happening? Because mm -hmm. part of what data lets you test and, and learn from is, did it work or not? And, and we want to know the answer to that question. Did it work or not? Because sometimes if it doesn't work, that tells us we should stop doing that mm -hmm. and maybe do something else, but a value metric would be looking like you know, time on site. When people come to the website, are they actually spending time there or do they show up and leave? Mm -hmm. Another thing that's pretty common when we look at things like you know, email metrics, you can track a lot of things about an email, open rate, click through, but if I'm running an email campaign, conversion rate is the most important thing I care about, right? Did I get someone to take an action? Because if they opened it, you get false positives. If they click, it, these are nice to know, but if I'm gonna obsess about something, it's conversion rate. And if I'm gonna make changes to the donation form or the event sign-up form, should I add something? Should I take something away? The thing you would look at is, what does it do to conversion rate, right? If I make a change, if I change the, the ask amounts, or if I, if I alter something about it, what I really wanna know is, I might lose some people, but, I might also gain some people. I might get a higher average gift amount, and so I want to focus on conversion rate. Page visits and all those things, you know, they're metrics. They're just not the most important ones. I think there's a tendency when we, when we start to use metrics, we, we often tend to overdo it, right? Create the dashboard that's got 12, 20 metrics on it so you can create a nice, pretty dashboard. But often for a lot of organizations, it's three to five key performance indicators, three to five main metrics they pay attention to. You know, I think about, flew in um, to Toronto yesterday and uh, was thinking about the fact that in the cockpit of the airplane, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But the only two things that the pilots really care about are airspeed and altitude. There are a lot of gauges and a lot of dials, but they really just care about mm -hmm. airspeed and altitude. 
and the landing gear, I guess. So I guess what, what is your airspeed and, and, and altitude? If so that you I, yeah. know that you're watching the right thing. If I'm a nonprofit organization, my airspeed and altitude are first year donor retention, multi-year donor retention. And you notice I separate them out because mm -hmm. oftentimes people say, well, our donor retention rate. Yeah, but your first time donors do not behave the same time as your long-term donors. You're cheating if you put them together. You want to look at first year donor retention and then multi-year donor retention. The other thing I would want to look at is sort of airspeed and altitude is revenue per donor. Right? How much revenue is generated in a 12-month period per donor? Because if I know that, and I know my retention rate, I now have a forecasting tool. Right? If I could increase revenue per donor by $5, what would that do to my budget? And how might we increase it by $5 or $10 or $20? Mm -hmm. Like those three metrics alone, like I know I can, I can do a lot of things with, with just those three. I can make decisions based on that. Mm -hmm. and, and that's important because, you know, one of the challenges that I think we see orgs run into is um, what's called the hippo problem. It's the highest paid person's opinion. And I know in a lot of charities, the hippo says, we're going to grow annual giving by 12%. 12%? We, we only have had six. And, and what you really, you need data and information, right? You could say, I understand you'd like us to grow annual giving by 12%. That, that's a great idea. We're all supporting growth. Our data suggests that over the past three years, we've grown at 7%, 6%, and 8%. So you want us to raise the bar. That's great. Here's what we would have to do to hit that 12%, a data-driven conversation as opposed to, well, it's 12%, or we don't like yellow, so don't make it yellow, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's using the data to drive that decision-making. Speaking of the, the HIPPO uh, approach, there, there's also uh, the issue of uh, what are the right messages? And where do you learn those messages from? Is that from the C-suite that says, we are this organization, this is our mission statement, so that's who we are? Or do we listen to the data and look at the data in terms of how people are organically finding us keywords mm -hmm. that they're using that helps us understand ourselves better in a natural environment than from the C-suite? Is, is that a thing? I think so. You know, no strategy survives first contact with real humans, right? So we may have drawn it up on a whiteboard, we have made an amazing PowerPoint chart, but eventually we gotta go test this with real people. And one of the things, uh, and there's a chapter in the book about agile organizations. Can we make decisions? Can we iterate quickly? It's okay if we make a mistake. It's not okay if it takes us six, 12, 18 months to fix that mistake. But let's say we do something today that didn't work so well. We'll fix it tomorrow. We'll fix it next week. And, and so I think what you're going to start to see is tra that traditional model of a very top-down command and control structure, those won't work as well in the future. It's what you really want is an agile organization where people across different departments don't think in terms of hierarchy, but think in terms of outcome. What's the thing we're trying to get done? Who are the different groups of departments in the organization we need to work with? And if we make a mistake, you know, I, I don't like to use the, fra the phrase sort of, you know, um, let, let's fail. I'm, I'm more about learning or flirting, flail to learn, right? Fail to learn, right? Um, let's learn quick. Let's make decisions. We could change our mind tomorrow. It's not carved in stone that we did something. But that's a, that's a cultural thing that people have to get comfortable with and that really leadership needs to support, right? We, we, as leaders, we bring people in not because we just want to give them a list of things to go do, but 
things we need to do to help them drive forward. And so in an agile environment, the faster you iterate, the faster you move, the more room you have. I don't think there's a person here that doesn't believe or, or doesn't internalize what you're saying. The practical reality um, oftentimes can be quite different. Um, so you have a campaign, you're gearing up to a campaign, you're super busy, there's a target date, you're doing the campaign. You mentioned testing, which I think you know, everybody here understands in the digital world, A, it's easier, you can get the decisions actually go through a testing period um, and accept the fact that some things will fail and some things will succeed before they do the campaign or do they launch the campaign? Yeah, there's the challenge of it might not work. And so we shouldn't do that because it might not work, but it might work. Um, what, what I found, and, and when I've talked to organizations who, who've built a culture, you have some muscle tone or some skill, is that if you're not, if you're in an organization that doesn't test things or doesn't try new things, um, you can get there. What you generally have to do is, um, John Schwash with World Wildlife Fund, who I talk about in the book, one of the things that he identified was at World Wildlife Fund, what they would do is they would find problems or opportunities that were big enough that someone would care about, right? Wow, that's okay. That's something we'd like to know the answer to, but not so big that too many people would care about like, whoa, 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 whoa. You want to do what? I don't want to test that. Leave that alone. So he found you've got to find a problem that's big enough for people to care about, but not so big that people care about. And the other thing, boxing is huge. 30 days. We're going to work on this for 30 days. At the end of 30 days, we're going to make a decision. Now, that decision might be, we're not going to do this. That was a dumb idea. Let's forget we ever did that. But you, you time box yourself to say, we know at the end of some fixed period of time, we're going to make a decision. We're going to try a bunch of things. And at the end of that, we're going to make a decision, hopefully with data that's helping us decide what we should do. And then we move on. And then what you find is, if you start with those small opportunities, those small problems. You get muscle tone, you get comfortable with it. Wow, that wasn't so bad. We all survived that. What's the next thing we could test? What's the next thing we could do differently? And before you know it, you've built a culture of a willingness. We try things. Now, we try things for 30 days or we try it for 90 days. And you, you've sort of given yourself, you always know that it's not going to go on forever because oftentimes mm -hmm. that's the fear. We're going to do this and we're not going to be able to stop. Sure we are. We're going to stop it in two weeks. We're going to stop it in four weeks. You, you, you let people know there's a sort of a safety landing zone of which we might decide we're not going to do this or, or it, was a, it was a great success. Let's keep doing it. How do we do more of it over time? So presumably that means that we're learning how to benchmark. We're learning how to look at the industry and, and relate to things that are real to us. You have a, a very interesting quote here that I want to share with everyone and then I'm, I'm hoping you can bring this home for us so that we can understand how would we put this into practice. If you and I were being chased by a bear, then I wouldn't try to outrun the bear, I would only try to outrun you. Yeah, no so offense. So help Ted. us understand, that's, yeah, because you're leaving me to the bear. That's, so, I'm leaving, yeah. that, that, well that's, so that's benchmarking, right? right? Um, I'm just trying to outrun you. Yeah. When, we, when we measure things, there are two ways to measure things. Uh, there's absolute performance, which is how am I doing as an individual or as an organization? How are we doing compared to ourselves? And when organizations start to use data and they start to use metrics, they start with looking at absolute performance. Last year, we raised X. In 2019, what are we going to raise? I'm measuring against myself. 
But when you mature, you're going to get to a point where I can't just compare myself to myself. How am I doing compared to other organizations? And that, that's when you're looking at relative performance. And relative performance is benchmarking. How am I doing in a particular metric compared to organizations? So we talked earlier about first year donor retention. All right, well, our organization is 30% of first year donors we're retaining. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. Now, if I tell you that the best organizations in your sector are 38, well, then that tells me something. Now, I might say 38, whoa. I don't know how we're going to do that. But it does tell you that it's possible. It tells you that there's a charity out there who's doing eight percentage points better on first year donor retention. So it tells you it's possible, which should give you some confidence. Now, it may also give your board and your leadership, hey, why aren't we doing as well as those guys? But those, mm -hmm. are, those are good conversations to have. But once you move into measuring benchmarks, doing relative performance, then you could say, wow, if we were 8% better, and I know what revenue per donor is, what would that mean to the organization, mm -hmm. right? And, and benchmarking is one of those things that once you get very comfortable with how you're doing, you're then going to want to move up to how am I doing relative to others? And the good news is in the sector, there's a lot of benchmarking that's uh, reports that are produced on an mm -hmm. annual basis. Blackboard does it, but yeah. lots of great reports out there on benchmarking. So if you want to know not just how are we doing, but how are we doing relative to others, there's a lot of great resources out there. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a benefit to charities. And we're going to talk about a couple of those reports uh, today. But uh, first, I want to ask you, so uh, one of the criticisms of your book, few criticisms of your book, um, has been um, the lack of emphasis on the power of visualized data. What is it, and do you agree with the criticism? for all of us to have and develop over the next several years is, is what I would call data literacy, which is not can you write a regression and understand what endogeneity means. No, there will be people who will do that. More likely there will be machine learning that will do that. But data literacy, can I look at a chart? Can I explain it? Can I understand it? Spend an entire part of the class about data visualization. and. We spend a lot of time with students talking about there's more bad data visualization than good data visualization. So, you know, just because you can do it with a pie chart doesn't mean you should. Like, mm -hmm. you know, the pie chart that's cut 26 different ways and you can't make sense of it. And so data visualization is one of those skills. The good news is um, there's a lot happening in that field. And if you want people in your organization to get more comfortable with data, it's likely going to be through data visualization, charts and graphs, not looking at rows and rows and columns and columns of data, because a lot of people will tune out. It's about visualizing it that in a way that that's powerful. So maybe... But the metrics versus vanity metrics, just because you can measure it doesn't mean it's meaningful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we, we live in a world where we're trying to balance quantitative and qualitative. I think they're both important. Um, but just because we can measure it doesn't mean that it's, that it's important. We've right. got to understand, and then what? What would we, if we had that information, right? Before you even create the metric, before you even go do the work, mm -hmm. ask yourself, and what would we do if the answer was this? Because you can, you can play that scenario out all day long. If it was this, what would we go and do? Because that's the real test, mm -hmm. right? If the data tells us we should do something or we should stop doing something, 
Are we, are we going to do it? Yeah, do we have the courage to actually see that? Do we have the that, courage to do it and to see it through? I want to go back to benchmarks again for, for our audience thinking uh, about the practical aspect of that. Depending on the culture of your organization, you could imagine an organization that you set forth a series of benchmarks that are related to your industry, and suddenly you know, your hippos are saying, well, that's where you should be. And so, so for some folks, we sort of cower away from some of those benchmarks because our organization sees them but doesn't actually know what they are. But isn't there a sort of, and I, and I hate this word, but kind of a defensive way to use those benchmarks to say, as, as you are going to, uh, we can get there with these resources, but we can't get there with no resources. So, there, so part of the measure there is what will it take to get there? It's not a measure of we aren't there yet. Can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah, I think we, we all struggle with time and financial resources and technology. It's about how do we prioritize where we spend our time and where we spend our resources. We can't do all things, so where should we focus? And in the case of benchmarking, at least benchmarking gives us an opportunity to see, is it possible? Who are organizations out there who are high performers? And what would it mean if we were to improve our results, right? The example of donor retention, the percentage of donors who are giving monthly versus just a one-time gift. These are all things that they get benchmarked in this sector. And we can use those as a, a, a tool to help us understand if we were to improve our performance, what would that mean to the organization? And, and that you put a value on that, whether it's a financial value or a resource value or a time people value on it so that what what do we hope to achieve and benchmarking helping to see is that possible the other thing is you find out uh, and we've done this in, in some research for the Blackboard Institute is we go and look at the really high performers in an area and then we go and sit down with them and watch what they do so what is it that not even just you know above average does but what are the highest performing organizations do and it's usually they do a handful of things really, really well that they figured out over time and there's nothing special about it, it's just they do those things. And you could probably do most of them as well, right? So you're trying to drive a sustainer, a monthly giving program. Uh, what is it that high-performing organizations do? Can we imitate or can we adopt some of those practices as well? Um, to your book, and this is uh, page 11, and I understand, you know, this is a not a digital book, so eighty-five thousand know, words. So yeah, a so, lot of so stuff this is yeah. uh, uh, this is um, from a report from Target Analytics, uh, which is a division of Blackbot, and in this, you you share two benchmarks. And I'm just wondering if you can help folks relate to this in terms of how they might, you know, first of all, relate it to their own organization, but also then to develop something that might be a little bit more real. And and that is that you say uh, twenty-nine percent of first-year donors are retained, and the good news is, is that multi-year retention for donors is 60%. So help us understand, my, you know, I, I think we would all assume those numbers are real to that report at that particular time. However, is there a ratio there of basically two to one of, of multi-year to first-year that is a, a good benchmark or standard? Yeah, so the book came out in 2016, and then first-year retention was 29%. Multi-year donor retention was 60%. Uh, guess what? That's still roughly about what it is. They don't change that much. What I found with that, though, was 
something slightly different than maybe what you're expecting, which is, so we're looking at first-time gifts versus what happens if I get to give a second time and over multiple years, right? My retention rate, astronomical improvement. And if I'm getting you to give monthly, it's even higher. It's like in the 70%, right? Yet think about the mindset of the typical organization, which is you're very focused on the first-time gift. You're very focused on the first-time gift. Think of how much time and energy and effort you spend that first-time gift. And yet, for multiple years, you're losing seven out of ten donors. But if I get the second gift, if I can get to the second gift and I get you to give for multiple years, my retention rate is 60% or higher. And so one of the things that I found was there's a story in there which is maybe we should stop obsessing about the first gift because the reality is the first gift is table stakes. What if it was all about the second gift? If you went back to your organization and tomorrow and you, you got a bunch of people in the room for an hour and just wrote one question on the board, what if it was all about the second gift? What if everything we did from a fundraising perspective was about getting to the second gift? What would we do differently? Now, you will probably come up with some ideas that you go, yeah, we would never do that. That's okay. But my guess is you would come up with a couple of things on that list about getting to the second gift that would change your behavior, that would change your results. And so I think that the underlying hidden story in the retention numbers is it's not about the first gift. It's about the second gift. So Steve, are you saying that the average charity uh, are bad stewards, bad at relationship building? I would we're say, good at first dates, but we don't do better than that. I would say that the numbers would say that we're bad at retaining you after first time gift. If if given the amount of given the amount of time and money and effort we spend focusing on getting that first gift relative to the retention rate, I would say we're not doing a great job. But the data says, but there is there is a bright spot. The bright spot is if I get you to multi year giving, what might I do differently? And this is one of the reasons why as well is I'm a big fan of, of monthly giving. Because monthly giving inherently in it gets you to that second gift a lot faster. Now you might say, well, but you know, I've got to play catch up versus you know, someone gives me a $120 gift versus $20 per month. I'd rather have the $120. I'm like, really? I think you want the 20 per month. Because mm -hmm. eventually that works out really, really well. And, and using that as an example, immediately you can see where there's a different value proposition to the relationship because the, the 120 might be my December campaign. So I, I got your view because I've, I've, I've convinced myself that you care more about December or you care about an annual gift than if I have to maintain that relationship and continue to earn that trust with a monthly gift. Those appear, seem to me to be two very different kinds of relationships. They seem to be, but then the data would suggest, and we're going to donors who make single gifts and converting them over to monthly giving. And what we found in the data is that in particular, donors who make gifts of less than $200 per year are the optimal candidates to switch to monthly giving, right? And, and one of the challenges, and this is probably a good problem to have, Organizations have been doing this for a while. Their challenge now is 60, 70, 75% of their file is giving monthly. Now, it's a, but it's a problem that they would prefer to have right. versus the alternative. Now, 
when we talk about mid-level giving or, or major gifts, principal gifts, then we're back, it's a different conversation. But if I'm thinking about how do I build a relationship with an individual over time that gets them to continue to give, that giving is like, that's the way to go. Like everything in the data is good about it. It's just, it's a, it's a mindset change for a lot of charities, especially in the US. In Canada, in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, they get this because it's been the mode of operation for decades. They have a different challenge, which is they then say, well, how do I get mid-level giving and how do I get major giving? And they look and they have envy for those types of gifts. But it's, it's a place to start, especially if, if the problem I'm trying to solve is this retention issue, there's different te techniques that you might choose to use. You also you made the point of, you know, someone made that gift in December, but then oftentimes in a nonprofit that means, well, then we'll only follow up in December, or what you don't realize is the data would say it's actually plus or minus two months. That, that December, that May gift, didn't mean that I'm, May is when I give, and I don't give the other 11 months here. December is the only month I give. The data says that that doesn't happen. What you usually see is most single gifts fall plus or minus two months on when it happened, right? Where you might be looking, wow, this person's lapsed. They gave in December. It's December and they haven't given again. They have lapsed. No, 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 no. You're still in the window. They're lapsing. They're not lapsed. Mm -hmm. And then also I would say, once you're past 60 months, when someone's lapsed past 60 months, they're a brand new donor. I know reactivation is the new acquisition, but after, after 60 months, it's as if it's a brand new relationship. And, and you need to think about that. And, and your data could tell you where you are with, with your supporters. Back to a data-driven uh, nonprofit. Um, there's, a, there's a quote here, but then I wanna, I wanna read something about the culture and have you relate to that. Sheryl Sandberg says, if you're offered a seat on a rocket ship, don't ask what seat, just get in. There are two types of highly data-driven car, and I'd like you to relate to um, which one we should be. Nonprofits that have been data-driven from the very beginning and those organizations that made a significant change at some point in their evolution. While some organizations are born data-driven, others have to reboot their system in order to successfully make the transition. Should we reboot and how would... This is a, a reboot. You know, for a lot of organizations, this does not come naturally. I'm a decalculus student. I have no business dealing with all this data stuff. So I've had to work really hard to get good at it. Do I understand how a regression works? Yes. Do you want me to write one for you? No. I would go to people. It's a skill set that we've got to build up. And I think the, the reality, though, is this is the future. And those organizations who are data-driven or choose to become data-driven are the ones you're likely to see become better performers, higher performers, achieve their goals, achieve their missions. And so if you're an organization or an individual with a growth mindset, you want that challenge. You want to learn new skills. You want to get better at this stuff. And you, and you want data to be the thing that helps you make these decisions. Ultimately, we're not turning this all over to the robots mm -hmm. yet. Um, there's still That's good news for all of us, yeah, right? It's we good still news have a for job. All of us. We're not going to be replaced job. by robots. What's going to end up happening is we're going to be able to maybe not do the five or six jobs we have to do today. Maybe we can get a dime on, get automated, right? The, there used to be a whole industry that did typesetting. We don't do typesetting anymore. Most of the people who are really good at typesetting became designers. 
And most of the folks who weren't very good at typesetting went and did something else. These things change. And, and I think we're at an opportunity right now in the sector, you know, if you want a future career path to really be successful, it's, you know, being data literate, being comfortable working with data, using data to drive decisions, that's gonna be one of those things that, that people are looking for um, now and, and into the future. So uh, you mentioned earlier a few benchmarking uh, reports. One, of course, is Canada Helps 2018 report on online giving. There's also the MNR benchmark report that I want to talk to you uh, about today. And then uh, I think you're probably uh, familiar with the Blackboard online uh, uh, benchmark report. Yep. You are yeah. familiar with that. You've seen it before. I've seen, I've seen all okay. of those. Yeah. That's good. Good. So now I want to talk about some data, and I and I, and I want you to relate to some of the actual things that have been found in in these reports to help us make sense of them. Um, this, they may be real for each of these organizations, or they may be things that board members and hippos are reading about, and therefore they are immediately experts in the area, and then they're going to be telling you that this is how your fundraising program uh, must run. So one set of facts that I want to share with you is, is of course, the Facebook phenomenon. Okay, so uh, Facebook, you've all heard of Facebook, everyone you have, okay. Um, so, uh, and fundraising on Facebook and, and, uh, and, and people that are using that. So data says that the average gift raised on Facebook is $31 and that $1.77 is raised for every $100 that's raised through more traditional channels. So is there a Facebook phenomenon and should we be paying attention to it? Yes and yes. Um, you know, for a number of years, what we've seen in the data is that uh, social media is a place where you can raise money. You can also raise volunteers and activists and lots of other types of activities, in part because that's where billions of people are spending billions and billions of hours doing things. And so it's not surprising, you know, we've seen, especially this started out probably a decade ago, with peer-to-peer -peer fundraising, so walkathon, marathon type of events, they were the first ones who were successful raising money through social media. Why is that? Because that method of fundraising is friends asking friends. And where are your friends? Or your kind of sort of friends? They're on social media. And so it made perfect sense. Why could you raise money on these platforms in that way? It's because that's where people were and you had a one-to-one -one or a one-to-many relationship. Now, fast forward a decade later, Lots of people are using it. Uh, there's some new tools available, but it, but it makes sense that, that people are going there in part because there's a convenience factor. Uh, I, just the other day, uh, I gave through a Facebook campaign to a friend who's raising money for their birthday. And it was super easy and convenient, right? Because there's low, there's low friction there. The reality is though, that I could have also given directly to a charity. I could have given other methods. The thing you have to understand about digital is a lot of it is the convenience factor. It was just easier. I think I know where my checkbook is. Mm -hmm. It's buried under a bunch of stuff in my desk at home, I think. It's just more convenient to use that as a, as a mechanism. But I also you know, always caution people not to confuse the channel of engagement with the channel of the transaction. I may have saw an advert, advert, I may have 
seen a social media post. I may have gotten something in the mail. I may know someone whose impact is easier to transact that way, especially when, especially in a mobile world. I mean, your phone isn't really a phone because very few, if you ever look at charts on what people do with their phones, it's all about data and very little actually using it as a phone, right? Your mobile device is your wallet, is your bank account, it, all of these things. And oh, by the way, it's the device of which I can very quickly, when I'm engaged, give to a charity, uh, sign up for an advocacy action, volunteer, do, I can do things through that mobile device, even if I'm engaged through different channels. It's very, very powerful, and I think we should expect that's only going to continue. Steve, um, the MNR benchmark report shared uh, emails sent out. The average nonprofit raised $45, and response rates are down 13%. Help us make sense of that. How big does our email list have to be? Uh, I would say that it's not the size of your house file, it's the value of the house the file. Mm -hmm. uh, we could spend a whole hour talking about bad things, data, right? There's this perception, unlike direct mail or other types of channels, email's free. Who cares if we've got 20,000 people who are completely unresponsive in our list? It doesn't cost me anything to just hit the send button. Yeah, it actually does hurt your reputation. Um, those are people who aren't engaging. Their unresponsiveness is telling you that this is not a channel mm -hmm. that they prefer. Right, and so you're much better focusing on what is our best list? What is our highest performing list? What is our most engaged list? Those are the folks who've shown that, they that email is one of the channels that they prefer. But we also have to recognize, you know, I, I'm sure someone would say, well, isn't email dead? Uh, just like we've said for probably 30 years, direct mail's dead. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. No. Uh, you know, I think we've got to rec recognize it's, the reality is, Single channel communication is the thing that's dead. Just using email by itself, bad idea. Just using direct marketing by itself, bad. It's, it's the combination, right? Is it email plus social media posting, plus SMS, plus analog stuff, right? That's actually the combination that works. And, and back to the old you know, thing of just, is your messaging consistent? Right? Are you using the same message over and over again? You might be bored with your messaging, mm -hmm. but your constituents probably aren't because they probably haven't heard it enough times yet. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, go in a very different direction. Overall digital ad budgets for nonprofit organizations grew 144% in 2018. Are we on to something? I think it's the, it's the new normal. Uh, when you look at organizations who've done well from a digital perspective, several years ago they realized they had to start investing in digital ads. Social media sites aren't free, they're for-profit companies. If you really want to get to the level of targeting and, and content, you're not going to get it through organic content. Uh, it's going to be through paid search, it's going to be through paid ads, but I think you'd also find that the ROI is a pretty compelling case. I know of charities who can't get, they have more money to spend on the ad, more money on it all day long because it works. The challenge is we've got to keep up with this pace of change, right? The answer is, oh, we just need to get better at search engine optimization. Yeah, you could have someone spend all day long on SEO. Uh, I'll, I would spend that money on the ad mm -hmm. because it's targeted or, or, or I can do different types of things. And, and that's why you're seeing the spend 
go up. Search, social media, is paid acquisition. It's not very different than paid acquisition through the mail or other channels, except the ROI in a lot of cases is a lot better. And, and isn't part of that that these for-profit companies that can be utilized smartly by nonprofits, they know more about our donors than we do? They know more, uh, but I think it's also the case that as charities, we need to be more informed about these things. We've got to, we've, in a lot of cases, back to the, we started talking about at the very beginning, the, the digital filing cabinet, right? The electronic filing cabinet. We have the, a lot of this information. We either haven't been leveraging it or we've been undervaluing it, right? How do we understand that relationship? And a lot of times it's a, it's a culture change that we have to, to take on. Mm -hmm. Steve, this isn't just the golden goose that we just need to do more of. We're not doing enough of it. We're not taking it seriously enough. Mobile users account for 50% of traffic, but only 30% of gifts and 21% of revenues. So we've got to be pretty smart and strategic if we're going to succeed in this world. Yeah, you know, we've, we've done some research over the past few years. I think in 2018, what we found was 24% of online donations happened on a mobile device. Uh, more than half of emails are now opened on a mobile device. Um, everyone here has, and in listening, has one, if not two, <laughs> mobile devices. Like, mobile is, it's just the new normal, and it's only going to accelerate. It's also a very powerful channel. There's some amazing things that we can do with mobile, yet we need to make sure, have we optimized for that channel, right? What is that experience like for a donor on a mobile device? And, and is it a good experience, or is it a, meh, it's okay, because there's that commercial on now, it's like, good enough, it's good enough. Good enough isn't good enough, right? Especially when you know, we're trying to engage with younger donors, more engaged donors, the mobile is an opportunity to, to level up, and there's so many exciting things. I mean, think about what, what you really have with a mobile device. You have a, a television station, a movie production facility in your pocket. The, what you can do with video on a camera, what you're gonna see happen with augmented reality, really some powerful things. And you know, we're seeing a, a huge growth in what we call stream raising. So this idea of online gaming but that online gaming is raising money for charities. There are charities I know of who are raising in excess of 10 or $20 million through stream raising today. And again, that's a mobile device where someone's doing gaming. I've got video, I've got audio. It's a highly immersive environment. You're gonna see that change. Uh, and that's a change that's gonna happen throughout the sector. I wanna uh, look specifically at the Canadian uh, market. I wanna share with you some data and ask you, to take this data and put it within the prism of your experience, your information, and uh, help the folks here um, learn from your expertise what kind of strategy you might be looking at if, if this is your reality. So um, one thing that comes out in the Canada Helps 2018 report of online giving is that less than 21% of all Canadian tax filers contribute to charity. So let's, let's park that, okay? Online giving grew by just 0.5% uh, per year. The however, the average gift is up um, more than offline gifts. So let's park that. And then I just want to share with the audience 
the extent of the charitable sector in Canada. There are 1.4 million employees in charitable organizations, and the charitable sector in Canada accounts for 8% of the national GDP. In the United States, by comparison, the charitable sector in the United States accounts for 5.4% of the GDP. So if, if that is your reality and that's what's happening, what in general does the expert say is a strategy that you should be thinking about? So I've got good news and I've got bad news. I'll start with the bad news. The bad news is, and this is true in Canada, it's true in the US, UK, and other markets that we've looked at, that the percentage of the population that gives to charity is not nearly as large as anyone really thinks it is. And I think that sort of data shows at less than 20%. But what we also know from the data is that those individuals are extremely generous. We see this time and time again, that when there's a natural don't give less or stop giving, what happens is, in fact, they, they give more. They extend their giving. That's the bad news. There aren't nearly as many donors as we think there are or as we would like there to be. The good news is, is that you can build meaningful, lasting relationships to the causes that they support. And so I think so much of our focus is around how do I have a good donor experience? How do I build a lasting relationship over time. Those are all things that we can control. We can't control when that next major event happens. We can't control all the changes in technology. We can't can control is the relationships that we have with donors. And I think, again, moving into the future, it's about how do we have the donor delight, right? How do we create delightful, meaningful experiences with those donors? And as we have millennials and Gen Z and whatever happens after Gen Z, there'll be a new wave of people who have them. How we use digital technology or, or really any of these channels can, can lead to some really positive outcomes. So the bottom line for Canadian charities is success is likely to be found in being strategic and targeted on relationship building. People give to people, even if there's a web page in between that or an envelope or something else. People give to people. Um, technology helps us prioritize and find the right people, but at the end of the day, we've got to engage with them. We've got to have those meaningful conversations. We've got to build those relationships. Um, and you know, there's, there's plenty of bright spots out there, organizations who are doing a great job at it. I really enjoyed uh, your book. Again, uh, your, your book is Data-Driven uh, Nonprofits. And I thought it was pretty good until I got to the end of your book where you're talking about uh, the future. And then I realized it was truly great uh, because you brought it all back. And, and this, this is something that uh, those who listen to The Nonprofit Coach is something that we with our audience today exactly how you did this. Uh, at the end of the book, where you're talking about the future, you're talking about the future through the lens of Lyman Pierce, who wrote a book called How to Raise Money, published in 1932. And you go on to say, the fast forward more than 80 years, 
those factors still hold true. So in the world of data, in a world that could not even be imagined in 1932, wrap this all up to us in terms of how the future is actually about the success of the past. Yeah, we're gonna, it's a weird time travel right. thing we have going on here. Yeah, Lyman Pierce and Charles Ward were two early book, How to Raise Money. I've got two original copies at home. And what I found in his book was that almost everything he was talking about, what makes a successful fundraising campaign, competent direction, uh, appropriate goals, focus, that's all still true today. We just have better technology. We have better tools. Panels are, are timeless. And so, you know, I know oftentimes in the sector, we talk about the, the artfulness of fundraising. And, and art and science are sometimes at odds, right? Because we've spent a lot of time talking about the science. There's data, data, data. And people will say, but Steve, you know, that science thing is great, but what about the art? And I'm a that the science allows us to do more art, to be more artful. You need both. Sometimes you need a little more of some and sometimes a little bit less, but they go well together. And, and those are things that, again, as professionals, we can practice our art, we can practice the science, we can get the types of outcomes we want, because it's at the end of the day, this is really important work. And, um, we can learn a lot from the past, but we can certainly do a lot to benefit the future. Steve, as you, as you know, in 2000, um, I, I started an organization called the E-Philanthropy Foundation. Uh, Blackbaud was instrumental in helping that get started. And the, the principle of that organization at that thing, uh, there were lots of people who were debating and saying, well, donors <laughs> will never give online. Certainly that whole internet thing. I think we were I think past you were on, you, that. You were on to something. Yeah, we were on to something. It's like we, you've been we, doing we, podcasting yeah. before podcasting was cool. So well, thank you. What's the next thing, Ted? What's the <laughs> well, that's actually where, where, I'm, where I'm going here for you. That's not for me, me to say, but... Uh, back then, we were really about the business of how people would give, and one of the messages at that time uh, was for a lot of people who were fearful of how I would use digital technology, how I would f fundraise online, it was, you do know how to fundraise online if you know how to fundraise offline, because it's still all about relationships, which is, I think, how you sought to, uh, to wrap up uh, your book today. So um, just as you did earlier, we talked about the future. We just have a couple minutes left. So I'm wondering if you would help round us out here. You said the future will reward charities. And of course, we want it to reward all the charities that are represented here that move to the next generation of optimized practices. What are they and how will we succeed in the future? Yeah, I know a lot of time gets spent on best practices. I think the reality is best practices are the watered down version of stuff we figured out that worked. And what we really need to focus on, what are next practices? What's that thing that people are not doing today, but we tested and we know that works? And there's a huge opportunity there. I think there's a lot of opportunity, certainly through technology, machine learning, artificial intelligence, it's gonna make it easier to do some of those next practices in ways that we haven't thought of. But so much of it just comes down to, do we believe that we need to improve our performance in a particular area? And do we have a growth mindset that says, we can be better at what we can do, we can improve it, now let's get going, right? You know, we're, you know, 
the, the past is interesting, but I think we're, if you're involved in the nonprofit sector, we're tomorrow people, right? We believe that tomorrow we can drive results, we can drive better outcomes, that's why we're engaged in this way. How do we take those next practices? How do we do some of this stuff that, um, that d drives the next 20 years of online giving or digital or, or whatever else happens next? Steve McLaughlin, thank you for being my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. Before we leave, make sure that my audience knows how they can reach you. Uh, a couple places. One, we've talked a lot about research today. Um, we publish a lot of research at the Blackbaud Institute. If you go to blackbaudinstitute.com, a lot of free research white papers on a lot of the topics that we talked about. Uh, and I think you can Google me or find me on Twitter or something like that, too. Great. Thank awesome. you, Steve. Thanks, Ted. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Podcast with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcasts at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Coach. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.